a lot of these wines, as they get older and they appreciate and they age in the bottle or for whiskeys, you know, in the barrel, uh, they do appreciate in value. Um, not only because of the taste preference, right? Their, their tannins mellow out. It becomes a flavor profile that more collectors seek. Um, but it's also something that it doesn't really have the same sort of correlation factors and the ebbs and flows of the financial markets. So a lot of folks see this as a piece of diversification in their portfolio, something that can stand the test of time and is also quite fun. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. When something appreciates over time, we often say it aged like a fine wine. Well, in this video, we're gonna learn about the emerging world of investing in rare wines and spirits. Once only available to the rich elite, innovative companies are now giving regular investors like you and me access to this asset class, which has outperformed the S&P over the past decade while offering important portfolio diversification given its low level of correlation to the financial markets. Today, we sit down with Anthony Zhang, CEO of VinaVest, to understand how the market for fine wines and rare spirits works what investing benefits it offers, and how new solutions are finally giving the regular individual investor the ability to play in it. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us today. Adam, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Hey, Anthony, I'm really excited to have this discussion. It's fascinating, the world that your company invests in. I got a lot of questions here for you. Really looking forward to this discussion. Um, real quickly, though, I do want to put one important caveat out there which is that your company, VinoVest, is, is paying Wealthion uh, to appear here in this interview. And um, this is the first time we've ever done this on Wealthion. We have a ton of companies that are reaching out to us all the time, offering us money for to sponsor a video or to be featured in our videos. And so far, we've said no to everybody else. But we, we think here at Wealthion that the fine wine and rare spirits market is, is one that our audience would be interested in learning more about. Um, your model is certainly innovative, and I, I can't wait to tell people how it works. Um, we've heard very good things about how you run your company. You know, we've done due diligence on, on VinoVest. Um, and our users have actually been asking us to surface other alternative forms of investments beyond just sort of the standard you know, financial instruments like stocks and bonds and whatnot. Uh, I had uh, the CEO of Diamond Standard on, who sort of educated us about what's happening in the, the, the diamonds market. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, there was some really strong interest and in, in feedback from that one. Um, I think uh, wines and spirits, probably even a more uh, wider interest category than that. So um, it, it just was a good match for what our, our audience has been asking for. Um, I want to let viewers know that the money that Wealthion receives from this is going to be channeled directly back into producing more videos in the future. It's going straight into video production. So it's just going to result in more of what you like uh, from this channel. Um, I also want to make it clear, too, that the, the money doesn't come with any strings attached. Uh, I, I don't have to give any sort of endorsement of your product or anything like that in, in reciprocation for the money. Uh, we're just doing this for all the reasons that I mentioned. And like I said, it's the first time we've done it. So let's all consider this a pilot. Folks, uh, we'll see how this goes. Let us know what you think. All right. So with that out of the way, Anthony, um, very excited to, to kick off this discussion with you. Um, I, I should note that I'm filming this from my studios here in Sonoma County, Northern California. It's kind of ground zero for great wines and great spirits. So there's a lot of people in my local neighborhood that are really excited to hear what you have to say here. 
Um, so let's let's start off at a high level here as we begin to dig into this. What are the reasons to invest in fine wine and spirits? What what advantages, what benefits uh, does this give the investor um, above and beyond uh, or in addition to what they can get in sort of the general stock and bond markets? Yeah, and, and thank you for kicking that off, Adam. I think in my mind, the main reasons people want to invest in wine and spirits and have been doing so for centuries now um, comes with two things. Right. Other than the returns, which you can get in many different asset classes, and it is a good, strong returning asset, um, it's really about protecting their wealth as a store of value. Right. You you mentioned ages like fine wine, right? That old adage is with us every single day. And it really does mean that a lot of these wines, as they get older and they appreciate and they age in the bottle or for whiskeys, you know, in the barrel, uh, they do appreciate in value. Um, not only because of the taste preference, right? Their, their tannins mellow out. It becomes a flavor profile that more collectors seek. Um, but it's also something that it doesn't really have the same sort of correlation factors and the ebbs and flows of the financial markets. So a lot of folks see this as a piece of diversification in their portfolio, something that can stand the test of time and is also quite fun, right? We have millions and hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of wine and spirits lovers in the world. And for many, it's also a way to connect something that they're passionate about or want to learn more about with something that can also eventually drive profits. Okay. And so that's interesting. So there's sort of this, I'm going to say intrinsic increasing value of the product over time. And then there's obviously the market cycles of how in demand you know the product is at any given time. But if it's just sitting there on the shelf, as time goes on, time is your friend in this business, it sounds like. The, the product itself actually measurably increases in value because of the chemistry of, of what age does to, to, to these products. That I've got that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct, right? With wine, say we're looking at the uh, you know stellar vintage in Napa Valley, say 2008, right? Um, a winery, in any given year, maybe they're producing 100,000 bottles in 2008. Every single year, right? Collectors are looking to drink that bottle, see how the taste has matured, and are drinking it over the course of its lifetime, which for many rare collectible wines can be 10, 20, 25, even 30 years into the future. And if you can imagine just from an intrinsic standpoint, um, every single bottle that's being consumed drives down that supply in a finite way, right? You can't really undrink a bottle. So from an economic standpoint, right, you have decreasing supply coupled with increasing demand because more and more collectors are, are seeking that age flavor, that perfect profile when that wine gets older and older as well. Okay, so that's a really interesting point as well, where you're saying time is also your friend as the investor here because the supply of the product just dwindles year after year after year, right? They're not making any more of a 2008 vintage. And every year, people both on the consumption side uh, drink it to enjoy it. And then you have some percentage of, of the aficionados who are sampling it every year to see, okay, how did this improve this year versus last year? Exactly. So you just, you just always have less and less of the product there. So that's interesting. That's another tailwind at your back. Um, okay, so those, those are two... We, there's sort of a chemistry, there's then the supply. Let's talk about the demand side for a moment. Um, 
you understand this much better than I, so I'm sort of spitballing here, but I know that there is um, more and more of the world as the developing world, uh, as, as incomes rise there and more and more people can afford the luxuries that the developed world used to primarily enjoy, demand for products like wine are, are going up substantially, right? As you have these countries that didn't drink wine before now entering that market. And then you have sort of just the collectors in general, right? Who are waking up to the fact that, oh, you can actually make a pretty good financial return in the wine market. Let's start coming in and investing in it. Can you talk about the dynamics of those two trends? Yeah, and I think those are two very important trends in addition to climate change, which we can touch on later. But I think to the first one, right? There is the sort of factor in which when countries are having a rapidly growing wealthy or high net worth segment, you often see the luxury goods segment uh, also increase in terms of demand, right? We saw the exact phenomenon happen in China where Bordeaux, Burgundy wines, right? In the mid 2000s, those were going bananas in terms of the demand for it. Um, first as just a status symbol, but then as the connoisseurs and, and uh, drinkers and collectors alike started to really appreciate it, it became more and more integrated within the actual consumption side of it, right? So high-end restaurants, retail stores, hotel groups, right? And, and we're seeing the same phenomenon happen now in South Korea, especially in the past five years. So I think when we do have um, global wealth that is growing at a rapid pace, we also see the demand for luxury goods, especially ones that are consumable, like high-end wines and spirits, also increase with that. Um, and that market, just from a global standpoint, um, is right now at around $370 billion is projected to grow 5.5% every single year for the next five and a half years. Um, and touching on your second point, which is more on the collection standpoint, right? It's, it's really interesting because I think with wine collectors, right? They've always known that the value of their wines go up in value. Um, you know, even our founding fathers, many of them were, were great Bordeaux and Burgundy lovers and collectors, and they've been known to sell off some lots that they weren't able to eventually consume. Um, but I think with the modern technology that we have and the transparency of data, that's really helped to accelerate um, folks knowing actually how much their sellers are worth, right? Being able to have technology like VinoVest, which is creating an open marketplace where more participants can join and more price discovery can be had. And that's also been able to invite a larger number of participants where, you know, maybe 30 years ago, it was just, you know, one auction a few times a year, right? Now there's multiple auction houses. Now there's auction houses online. Now there's global exchanges, right? There's so many more ways to make it easier for a collector to be able to transact and discover the value of their wine collection. Okay. And is, is there an ability today, given these solutions, perhaps yours and others, but just for somebody who's got let's say just a deep wine collection to be able to go on and almost like getting a stock quote, like just have a sense for, look, I've got, I've got a bottle of this vintage. What's, what's it's going rate right now. Yeah. There's a lot of folks are starting to be able to offer those services. And it really started with the auction houses, right. Um, with, with estate sales or liquidation sales, right. People are maybe downsizing into a new house. They don't want all the wine that they have, or maybe somebody, passed away and there's a great wine collection and um, the people are trying to figure out what it's, what is it worth? Um, I think the tricky thing when it comes to personal sellers is that it's hard to know how you stored it. Right. And that is one of the right. biggest risk factors when it comes to wine, 
because it can be stored improperly, which can completely ruin the value of the wine. Um, so that is really a double-edged sword, right? It's something in which if you are a beginner in the space and don't know how to look out for how to properly store a bottle of wine or how to spot counterfeits, it can be a really big risk. So uh, part of that and part of what why Vinovest was even formed in the first place was to be able to de-risk a lot of those components like authenticity, fraud, and storage, and be able to provide the everyday investor, right? Someone who doesn't have an existing wine collection, someone who probably never will, just wants to be able to access an interesting asset class, be able to do that through a fully online and secure solution such as my company. Okay. Um, all right. I want to get into those issues you just talked about, you know, fraud and assessing quality in terms of how it's been stored and all that stuff. And, and I know VinoVest has its own solutions in there. So we'll we'll get to the VinoVest part of the story in just a second. Um, but it sounds like we are, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we're, if we're already there today, but we are fast moving to a world in which you can get a, a pretty deep quote, like a, like a, like a highly robust, or we, we're getting to highly robust price discovery for this asset class where you can say, okay, I've got this bottle, you know, here's how it scores on storage quality and whatever, but, but yeah. I can get a pretty quick understanding as to what the true market value of this is. Um, Absolutely. For, for an investor in this space, I mean, kind of what's happening here, right, is, is we've had the fine art space for a long, long time right? Um, you're essentially creating a new category of fine art, if you will, which is a, a well-crafted bottle of wine or a well-crafted uh, spirit. Um, and you are now creating an exchange for it, or you and the other new innovative folks in this industry are creating an exchange where people can get price quotes and then transact, you know, quickly with confidence where you really haven't been able to do so before in, in this particular you know, spirits and, and wine related market. Um, for somebody who is an experienced investor in this space, what do they look for in wine or a spirit? Like if if they're if they're you know if they're trying to find an attractive investment here, what do they look at? Is it all about the label? Is it all about the vineyard that grew it? Is it about the special year, the actual vintage of what happened in that year? Is it a particular appellation? Is it what's popular right now? Like Merlots are really popular and Rosés are out, or I, I don't know the space as you can tell well. So what does somebody look for in an investing asset in this class? Yeah, I mean, there, there are multitude of factors, but if I were to boil it down to just three, um, it would be age, scarcity, and brand equity. So age is, I think one of the most important things is um, when you do look at wines, or, or whiskeys, not all of them are meant to be aged 10, 20, 30 years, right? The stuff that you're seeing maybe at Trader Joe's or at your local grocery store, they're mass produced, they're meant to be enjoyed that week. And uh, the winemakers didn't really have the uh, intention of having it be in, in, an ageable product. The ones that I think are more investment worthy or collectible are the ones where the winemaker had the intention of it being something that matures over time, something that develops, something that gets more interesting in its second and third decade. So that's really the first factor. Um, the second is the scarcity element, right? Um, for example, a wine that is available in every single grocery store in America probably isn't that collectible because anybody can get their hands on it, right? So we're looking for 
really special vineyards or wineries where that particular plot of land right is is known for producing this wine and even if global demand for that particular wine two x's or three x's overnight you simply cannot squeeze any more juice out of the grape they're not going to be able to expand their vineyard or else the the taste quality would taste different than what people are really looking for so i think the scarcity element and is in play for many luxury goods, but especially in the world of wine where there's a physical constraint, right? If you look at a Ferrari or an Hermes, right? They're, they're physically not making more Ferraris or broken bags because they understand those market dynamics, but they could, right? Those raw materials are available. For wineries, it is literally impossible, right? They're, they're dependent on mother nature and the age of those vines and what the, what the yield gives them. Yeah, and so, sorry to interrupt, but just to interject, because this is one area where I do have a little bit of, of inside knowledge, because I live out here in Sonoma County. Yeah. You know, there are these different appellations, which are basically, it's a wine growing region, and they all have their little microclimates. And so you, you have these vineyards, many of which aren't that big, but they're very well known because people yeah. love the the special blend of microclimate and soil conditions and things like that, that, that create that special taste there's only so many acres you can do that on you you, you yeah. can't they could buy the parcel next to them but it might create a yield a totally different product because it's got its own different set of of conditions there so to your point there is a real fixed limitation here yeah absolutely and i think you definitely see that um you know right around where you live right it's so site specific right and that's the concept of tawar right and that's you know the age of the grapes that's the microclimate that's even the type of soil, the age of the soil and the type of vine, right? It, it's very hard to replicate at a commercial scale. Um, so definitely there with you. And that's something that I think a lot of folks, as they get more into wine and spirits, they love to nerd out about you know, the soil mm -hmm. type. And it's, you know, it's, it's a really cool thing. Um, and then finally, it's the brand equity, right? It's wine, especially produced at this level is a luxury good. Um, so the same way a Hermes leather bag is going to cost more than a Louis Vuitton leather bag, right? There's that sort of brand equity that comes with it. And a lot of these top vineyards have just been known for consistency and quality for over 100, 150, maybe even 200 years. And it's something that was, is just so coveted. Okay. Um, and totally makes sense. Um, I got to ask this question just because it's kicking around in the back of my brain, which is um, for these wines, which get better with age, um, is there an age at which it becomes too old where, uh, you know, the, the quality of the wine starts deteriorating because of the chemistry. Yeah, I, I certainly believe so. Right. At a certain point, you know, wine is living good, right. It's, uh, something that has kind of a shelf life, but it's not like milk where, you know, if it's two days late, it is completely gone. Right. It's a very, very gradual arc and window over many years, many decades. And it's also highly subjective. You may love the taste of an aged wine. I might hate the same bottle that we're having at the same time. So when we're looking at wine and we're looking at that sort of, you know, ideal exit window, uh, oftentimes it's it's a wide range, right? So we may tell uh, one of our clients, hey, this is a 20 to 25 year old sort of whole time, right? And any time within those five years or maybe even longer, um, that wine is still going to be able to be very, very uh, delicious and pleasurable for whoever is drinking it. And the prices are there to match, um, but you know even then, right? You hear at auctions, um, a hundred-year-old wine or a wine from 1945, right? It's it's definitely past its peak, 
But at that point, it becomes more of like a piece of artwork, right? You think of a bottle of 1945 wine, like what was happening in the world at the time? How many bottles left in the world are there? Maybe it's maybe it's a sentimental year for somebody, right? An anniversary year, a birth year, uh, something really great happened, right? So people seek out these specific vintages, even when they're um, you know more widely considered to be past their prime. And those prices keep hiking up for it because of the scarcity value and the sentimental value to the user. Okay. And that's kind of where I was going, which is sort of how much of the value comes from the drinkability of it. Like this is the best taste you're ever going to get on this label because it's at the peak year of aging um, versus the collectability. Like this is a hundred year old bottle of wine. There's only seven left in existence that we know of. Maybe even though you might not drink it, it's just a rare piece of history. Yeah. And I think as the wine gets older, it, it slides a little bit more toward the latter that you mentioned because the, the taste part of it is so subjective. Okay. Um, all right. So let's let's get down sort of the nuts and bolts of, of actually in, investing in this space. And, and I guess maybe first, let's let's just contrast it to stocks and bonds right now. Like, like, like what type of investors does, does this make sense for? Um, why, who is going to say, okay, I've got some money in the markets and mutual funds and treasuries and whatever. Now's the time for me to start looking at an alternative investment like fine wine or, or rare spirits. Um, make sort of the investment case for me here. Yeah, I think, you know, we have these conversations every day with folks who I'd say are already decently well established, right? They've got their stock and bond portfolio, 401k, maybe they've owned some other alternatives like real estate, and they're looking to increase their exposure to alternatives. And what we'd first set out and do with these folks is to learn about that total allocation, right? Maybe they're at 5% or 10% in alternatives. They'd like to get to 20% over the next five, 10 years. So we build out a multi-year plan for them because you know, one of the main things about wine is it, it takes time, right? It takes time for that wine to age. It takes time for people to be able to consume it. So I'd say this is really for someone who um, is actively looking to increase exposure into alternatives, has a longer term time horizon, and has already a decent amount of exposure to traditional asset classes. Okay. And in terms of, of entering the market, um... Is there a minimum that you should really have in mind to get into this market? Like, you know, don't buy anything that's under X thousand dollars because it's likely to be, you know, too inferior a product. Um, or, you know, can, can you start with a couple hundred bucks? Yeah. So when when we take a look at the, the barrier to entry, right, we really want our investors to start at around, say, thousand, two thousand dollars. That's enough to buy you a case or two of wine or a barrel of whiskey with the mind that they're going to be adding to that allocation over time, right? There's new releases happening every single year, different times of the year. And we want to be able to build out a portfolio of different wines of different ages from different regions as well, so that they can have diversification within the asset class rather than just go lump sum and, and have a bunch of one thing in at one point of time. So our, our average investor They've got around fifteen thousand dollars with us, um, but they do usually tend to start, you know, drop drop a, a toe in the water and, and start with a couple k and, and build up from that. Okay, and we'll get into VinoVest in just a second. What you guys do in VinoVest, but um, does the typical investor here actually own 
bottles in their name um, or are there ways for them to sort of almost buy into like a collection, almost sort of like a mutual fund or ETF where they put in, they, 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 they buy a share, they've got a minority claim, but it's on many different types of bottles. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think uh, part of what makes us unique um, as an asset is that wine can be consumed. So at VinoVest, um, every single client owns the entirety of their collection, all of their bottles. That means they have complete control, right? With the mutual fund, um, you know, there may be penalties on exiting early or you don't really own the entire asset, right? With wine, um, you can decide to sell it whenever you want. You can decide to drink it whenever you want. And that helps with the liquidity in the market because it's mostly coming from the consumption side, right? If, if a buyer wants to buy six bottles out of your 100 bottle collection, you could do that very easily because you fully own it. Got it. And I was kind of chuckling when you said the word liquidity. I'm guessing that that can mean multiple things in your your particular part of the investing community. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, you know, wine is a, a fully a liquid, but uh, definitely in terms of an asset or financial standpoint, much less liquid than your stocks and bonds or real estate, right? There are no high frequency traders in the wine world yet. No, there aren't, but uh, it is a liquid asset in the sense that if you decide you want to just enjoy it and pour it into a glass, you can. Um, yeah. So, okay, again, we're going to get into VinaVest in just a second here, I promise. But um, just on the, the market itself for wine and spirits right now, what are the dynamics uh, of that market? And is this a particularly good or bad time to be investing in this space? I mean, it, I'm guessing that this market has been in somewhat hyper growth mode, right? As you've had, as we talked about earlier, you know, brand new parts of the world population like China, you know, coming in to access the market. You've had the investing community wake up and say, whoa, wait a minute, like we can kind of securitize this asset. We never really thought about this, you know, these bottles as an investing, you know, security in the past, but now we can kind of treat them like one. Um, is it is it just tailwinds and sunny skies ahead right now, or is it more cyclical than that? Yeah, I think with all markets, wine and whiskey both have its cycles. Um, I'll talk about whiskey first. I'd say you know we've seen just such a demand for rare aged whiskeys, right? So things that are above 15, 18 years old, and that has been on a tear in the past decade, two decades. Uh, we've seen definitely a slowdown last year, right? I think. Uh, having a having close to twenty percent annual returns for fifteen years is is not sustainable in any asset class. Yeah. So we kind of hit this sort of breathing remark where prices started to flatten over the last six to twelve months, and it's giving investors who are on the sidelines and, and looking for a good entry point that breathing room to be able to start deploying some capital. Um, on the wine side, we're seeing something similar, um, especially after COVID or during COVID, right? Um, I, I can speak for my own family, but our alcohol consumption definitely went up. <laughs> online online sales for wine and whiskey went up tremendously right, when everyone's stuck at home and not really knowing what to do. So we saw a boom you know, for about two, three years uh, that was really catalyzed by COVID-19. Now that things are back to normal, right? everything's opened up. We've also seen that same sort of breathing room. Prices starting to correct a little bit, especially for those super rare wines as people are now starting to realize like, all right, you know, I can spend the same at a restaurant, 
right? I can spend the same at an experience, right? I want to be able to do more than just buy wine online. So both markets right now are kind of in this you know, breathing room phase where uh, prices are started to just flatten out. Um, some regions that were extra hot, like Burgundy and Champagne, which have been giving 25 to 30% returns over the past three years straight, are starting to come down a little bit, which I think is healthy for any market and giving the consumption market time to catch up with the collection market. Okay. Um, you know, is there, you, you were talking about the, the rare whiskeys, um, especially the older ones, really kind of going bonkers the past couple of years. Is there, what are the differences between the spirits and the wine market? Um, I'm going to guess that maybe there's just less inventory on the spirit side, but I'm, that's, a, that's actually, I'm pretty ignorant on it. So that's just a pure finger to the wind guess. Is that actually true? Um, I think globally, wine is still a larger market. So you're, you're definitely correct. Um, you know, on the whiskey side, which is right now the only spirit that we deal in with, um, the main differences between wine and whiskey uh, is number one, the region, and number two, the way that the uh, product is actually aged, right? And there's, in France, right, you've got most of the most amazing wines regions. You've got Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Rhone. You've got Italy, right? And you've got Napa Valley, Sonoma, right? Those are sort of the key regions that produce wine. But when you're looking at the whiskey side, right, there's not much whiskey produced in France, right? People are looking to Scotland, Ireland, Japan, and parts of America. So regionally, there's a different sort of supplier influence. Um, and when you're looking at the aging side, right, wine ages in the bottle. Once you bottle whiskey, because of the strength of it and the proof, the taste profile doesn't really change once it's bottled. So most of the appreciation and rarity and scarcity factor comes when the whiskey is still actually in the barrel. Mm. So that's why when you're looking at the brand names of say, uh, you know, McAllen or Johnny Walker, right? They say 10 year, 12 year, 15 year, 18 year. And you can see the prices increase proportionally with that. Um, and that also leads to really steady price increases because we know that if we buy a barrel that's 10 years old and we age it to 18 years old, there's going to be a buyer because that 18 year scotch is going to be very marketable. And there are a lot of brands that want to be able to bottle it at that specific age because they know that they can command a much higher market price than say a 15 year old or a 12 year old scotch of the same of the same make okay um and you know going through your materials if, if i read it correctly um yes they'll the 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 more it ages the the more you know you'll be able to get a buyer willing to pay a good amount for it because it's becoming a rarer and rarer product out there um but it sounds like you, you may also have a buyer in the distiller themselves where they may say hey you know we actually we know we can sell that so let's we'd like to buy it back from you basically yep. to be able to, to to sell that so you're nodding as i'm saying this but i'd love for you to elaborate meaning you, you don't just have to rely on the secondary market you may actually have some of these distillers and i don't know if it happens on the wine side with the vintners but do they actually come back in sometimes and provide additional uh, buying pressure by saying, hey, I, I know I can sell it for more than I can buy it for here. So let me buy it and, and take it off your hands. Yeah, it's it's functions very similarly to a call option, right? And the reason why these distillers would even sell it to us and then buy it back eight, 10 years later is because of working capital constraints, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, these distillers are very, very much so reliant on what's happening 
the next time at the distillery, right? They want to be able to clear the barrels out as soon as possible because they need space to be able to make the next batch. Um, and the, even though they know they're going to pay a higher price down the line for it, they need to be able to keep producing. So oftentimes when we do buy our barrels, we have agreements in place with these distilleries to say, all right, you know, after five years, I have the option to buy it back at, at least, you know, some sort of markup on top. If you don't want to sell it to us, you can also still shop around the market, but you have a, you have a floor built in for, for the clients who would choose to do that. Okay, great. I mean, I, I would think that players like you may actually be creating real alpha in this market because you can buy at such volume from the distillers that you're an attractive partner for them on the working capital side where they're like, oh, yeah. I can actually raise a fair amount of money in working capital by striking this deal. So you're helping them out in the immediate term, but you're giving your investors the opportunity to buy this product you know, at, at a lower price where if things go well, that distiller might come back up in five or 10 years and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to exercise that, that right I have to buy it from you for a premium X. Yep, that's exactly it. And I think um, you know, the reason why this exists is because it's still very, very hard for these alcohol-based companies to get the type of financing that they'd like to get from traditional lenders. And with VinoVest, we're, we're very, very specialized, right? We're in this all day. We know how to value these barrels. We know how to appraise them. We know how to protect them. And we're comfortable being able to offer that uh, to them as long-term working capital partner. Okay, great. So let's get into the heart of the VinoVest side of the story right now. So what exactly drove you to create VinoVest? Like what particular market opportunity were you going after and trying to better serve with this model? Um, at, at first, it was just for a better solution for me and my co-founder. You know, we are wine enthusiasts. We collected wine uh, for many years and just realized that to be able to properly do it, you need a team. You need somebody to help source the wines. You need somebody to help research the right wines. You need somebody to help acquire them, authenticate them, store them, insure them. And they're all different companies that do this. So um, for, for someone who's kind of a nut and, and loves wine, it's a, it's a fun project, right? It's a very time-consuming hobby. But for most of us, we don't have that time or that effort to be able to do all of that under one roof. So... When Brent and I decided to create the company, it was really a better solution for us using technology, using automation, and using um, the tools that we built and the software that we built to be able to help us make those decisions faster, be able to have those offline things like storage, authentication, insurance, all taken care of so that we can invest in this just like we would at your Schwab account or just like you would through a real estate investing platform and have it be a really beautiful experience. Um, that was our hypothesis that um, we launched with that if we can make it easier, more people will come. And that's that's what's happened. Okay. So, I mean, presumably as an individual investor, I could go and buy bottles of wine to create my own collection, you know, in my mm -hmm. own home wine cellar. Um, but I'd have all the challenges that you just laid out there, right? I'd have to get educated on, okay, what are the, what are the most attractive bottles to go after? Well, how do I source them? Well, how do I authenticate them? How do I store them? How do I insure them? Um, it does begin to become, you know, a pretty tall ask, especially if you're doing this uh, 
you know, at some at some high price points, right? You don't want to get taken advantage of. You don't want to store the wine incorrectly. You don't want to get it lost or stolen or or buy a counterfeit or whatever, right? So, uh, and presumably too, it's a lot easier on your platform to get a wide selection of a product and be able to buy it. I'm guessing relatively instantaneously, versus having to go to all these individual auctions and hope the type of wine I want is going to come up there and then hope I'm the winning bidder for it and whatnot. So I can I can see a lot of the benefits that you're talking about here. So describe for me kind of the customer experience here. So I come to VinoVest, I'm interested in buying some wine. What goes on? Yeah. So first of all, we'll ask you about what you're looking to get out of it, right? What else do you own in your portfolio? How much are you looking to deploy? How much is your existing uh, wine investment knowledge, right? It's uh, really a introductory consultation, and we just really learn more about the client and how we can best serve their needs. Right. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but is this with a live person on your staff? Yeah. So a lot of people choose to talk to a live person because they don't know much about wine investing. Uh, others who maybe prefer the more digital route, they can go self-service and, and uh, be able to become a client right away through our website. Um, but most of us, uh, I think want a little bit more of that human to human contact. And that's what we offer at VinoVest. Um, after you've decided, hey, I'm going to invest a few thousand dollars. I'd like to hold this for 10 years. And um, I don't know much about wine investing, but here are my goals. I, you know, we give you some recommendations on a portfolio to build, right? And you don't need to do anything on after that. We actually are the ones who then connect with the wineries. We source those wines. We get them into our secure storage facilities, and we also authenticate and store them. All of this happens in the background while the user just sees you know, updates like a Domino pizza tracker. After that, you can see the prices go up and down. You can see market news. You can see insights and be able to be a part of this community, right? A big part of, um, you know, outside of just investing and seeing the numbers is the fact that wine is meant to bring people together. So we do a lot of meetups, educational events, ways for our existing community to meet other fellow clients, ways for our winemaker partners to be able to engage with their end clients as well. Um, and we try to make it a really rich experience because this is something that is there for the long run. We don't want it to be a set it and forget it if people don't want to. And we want to be able to also increase people's engagement and knowledge about this industry as well. Okay. So let's say I've, I've had this consultation and you're your expert there has helped me identify 10 wines. I'm just making this up. 10, ten wines to, to build my collection around. Um, do you do you have those wines uh, in, in your inventory? Do I buy them directly from VinoVest? Um, or do you go out and secure them kind of on an ad hoc basis after I say I want to buy it? So talk about the purchasing process for the from the customer standpoint. And then also, if you can talk about the storage process, do you guys yeah. store them for me in climate controlled vaults that I feel like great, the, the, the right thing's being done, or does it get shipped to me and I've got to deal with the responsibility of storing it? Um, do I have the option to do either depending upon my preference? How does that work? Yeah. So starting with the sourcing side, it is more on, on an ad hoc basis because we don't know what a client tomorrow is going to come in and, and want. Right. So after we determine what that ideal um, initial starting collection is, we'll then go out to our partners and source them um, and be able to bring you something. So every single week, our, our wine buying team has a hit list of wineries and clients, 
and we're able to source it for them on, on an ad hoc basis. All right. And sorry to interrupt there, but, but just on that, let, let's say that you have multiple clients that want a particular bottle. Um, are you able to kind of get volume discounts on it because you're buying from multiple people? We are. And that's uh, really the, the strength of our user base, right? We have now around 15,000 clients globally, and many of them are entering and, and re-upping and wanting to add to their portfolios every single month. So we're able to then have even better pricing, reduce that cost basis, even compared to if they were able to get it at auction or heavily discounted elsewhere. And that's another benefit of economies of scale that we're able to provide to our clients. Okay, awesome. All right, so that's sort of the sourcing where I'm, I'm working with your expert to find out what I want in my collection. Your team then says, great, we're going to go get it for you. So they go out and source it from your, your partners and hopefully getting some sort of volume discount if possible in the process. Once the bottle of wine has actually been procured, what then happens? So we handle all the storage. We actually don't allow our clients to be able to handle the storage unless they want to just drink it. Um, and the reason is very similar to why, um, say, when you're buying a car, right? They always say it loses its value right when it gets driven off the lot. Yep. Um, it's the same thing with wine, right? We want it to be as close to the winery as possible, exchanged with as little people as possible as well. So we want to keep it pristine. We want to keep it in a place where it is professionally managed because then when we eventually ship it or resell it, we can then point to the chain of custody, right? And we call that provenance of the wine. So say 10 years later, you wanted to buy wine that I had, I can tell you, hey, I bought this direct from the winery. It's only been in one place its entire life, professionally managed, and it's going to be in the best possible condition for you versus, oh, it actually was shipped to my house. I moved around a few times. You don't know how my seller is. And then I also shipped it back before I wanted to sell it. Right? It's a very different price that that bottle was able to command, even if it's the exact same vintage and exact same type of wine. Okay. Um, makes total sense. And again, though, you said, if I call you and just say, hey, you know what, Anthony, I want to drink that bottle now, you will ship it to me and I can crack it open with my friends and, and look like a big wig, right? Yeah, that's the fun part, right? Yeah. Someone wants to drink it and enjoy it at, at the end of the day. And we have, especially around, I'd say the holidays, we have some clients who are like, hey, we're up, we're up this year, right? Maybe I'll just drink my profits, take that off the table the fun way, because <laughs> I was probably planning on spending it on wine anyways. Okay. But it's great to hear that you guys give people kind of a turnkey storage solution, because I think in most cases, that's that's the best for everybody, right? It's, yeah. it's the it best really for the wine. It really reduces the headache, the barrier yeah. to entry, and it's it's a lot to manage. Yeah. Well, and so, and as you said, when you go to sell it, the, the, the buyer at that point in time can feel confident that it's been well kept for because of, of the standards of your storage facility. Um, let me go back to the acquisition of the wine itself for a second. Um, so when you're buying a bottle of wine or a case of wine, um, how are you able to assess it and evaluate it and, and confirm that, okay, yes, this bottle, which is still sealed in wax with its cork and everything, um, has been well taken care of. How, how do you know what you buy, you know, is the true value that you hope it is either not a counterfeit or just not stored incorrectly? So the simple answer is that we only buy direct, right? There's a lot of people every single day who come to be investors saying, Hey, I'm a big, I'm a big wig private collector. I've got this amazing seller. 
and I want to sell you some wines, we politely decline all of them because we can't take any of that risk on behalf of our clients. We want to buy straight from the winery. It's come straight from their sellers into our storage facility. And that's the only way that you can know for sure is seeing it with your own eyes. Okay. So makes total sense. So that makes total sense in general, right? It removes a lot of the risk uh, because you you know the provenance. It came right from the the company that that distilled it or or um, bottled it. Um, I'm just curious. That makes total sense for like a brand new vintage, right? They they made some this year. You're buying X amount from them. Um, how about like a like a really old label? Like let's let's use your hundred your 1945 example. Can you buy product like that from from these distillers and vintners? Or there's some sometimes, but um, a lot of wineries they've started to keep you know, what we're calling library vintages, right? Maybe they produce a thousand bottles, they're holding back. 30% of them, right? And they're releasing it on year five, year 10, year 15, because okay. they themselves want to be able to assess how that wine is evolving. Um, so the safest way to be able to buy an older vintage is by buying from the winery's library. Um, if we're unable to do that, we'll do the same exact checks that an eventual buyer would do, right? If it's if it's stored in a professional's warehouse facility, how, how did they get it to here, right? If, it, if we can trace it to the winery, we feel a little bit better about it. But it does introduce an extra layer of risk, which is also why we typically don't buy wines that are a lot older than, say, 15, 20 years, because they also don't have much more room to go right? for a long-term investor. Uh, we'd prefer to buy something that's on the younger side to really maximize the aging potential of the wine or the whiskey. Got it. Okay. So now let's get to the selling part. All right. So um, I've been a VinoVest client for 15 years, and that bottle I bought when it was five years old is now 20 years old and then super high demand. And I want to capitalize on my gains. What does that process look like? So when you're looking to sell our wine trading team, will be the one to really scan the market out, right? We'll put out offers on the wine on what we believe it's worth. And at that point, right, it's just letting the market do its thing, right? It's in high demand. A lot of high-end restaurants are going to want it. A lot of private collectors are going to want it. A lot of auction houses are going to want it, hotel groups, you name it, right? So we're able to then work with our network to be able to bring these folks here, publicize those offers, and be able to handle that transaction for you. And at the end of the day, you're able to exit that investment. You know Whether you want to put it back into wine or do something else with it, that's up to you. All right. And is it uh, just a straight transaction or is it like a bid system? So there are um, there are folks who do bid, right? It's an open marketplace. You can even set a limit order to say, I don't care how long this wine takes to reach this price. I just want to sell at X price, right? Some clients want that level of control. Others, they are more uh, more open minded, and they're like, Hey, I'm I'm okay with this around around this price, around this time frame, and I'm open to seeing what bids come in. And we alert each client whenever a new bid comes in, even if it is premature. So sometimes if uh, you know, if a wine is just particularly hot, they can sell within you know a few months of actually acquiring it because there are some great bids out there. All right. Um, well, you know, this whole thing sounds pretty straightforward. I mean, it's the, the 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 solution that you guys have put in place in VinoVest sort of seems to make sense to me at every stage along the way here, um, and it's it's fascinating uh, to think about this product, which 
I mean, wine is not a commodity and labels. Everyone knows that different labels and different uh, uh, vineyards are, are differing in quality. But to, to really think about this stuff much more like a stock than just like, you know, a nice gift to bring with you to your next cocktail mm-hmm. party. Um, it, it really is interesting to be thinking about this as, a, as an asset class. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet, either the VinaVest model or just the market opportunity in general that you think is worth letting folks know about before we wrap things up here? Um, I think really the main thing that I want folks to know about the market is just understanding that even though wine is you know, on the surface level, and actually once you dive into it, can be very confusing, right? There's a bunch of foreign French names, Italian names, vintages, right? Um, what really drove me to this market was the fundamentals, right? And thinking about something as simple as the next time you're enjoying a nice bottle of wine or a nice bottle of whiskey with your friends and you finish the whole thing that night, that is taking down the supply in a finite way. Everybody else who owns that bottle in the world is thanking you because you've just made their wine that much more scarce. <laughs> so it sounds like you should pay attention to the the bottles that you're investing in when you work with VinoVest so that whenever you do go to a dinner party, you're buying that same label to bring. So you know that as you're enjoying dinner, you're you're making your bottle of wine. So win-win. It's a little bit right. more expensive. Yeah. The tasty wine you can share with friends and you're and you're helping out the supply and demand side of the market. <laughs> That's great. Well, let, let me ask you this as we as we begin to wrap up here. Um uh so we've talked about, you know, the compelling reasons to think about investing in this asset class. We've talked about your your solution there. Let me just ask you, nobody's a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Based on a lot of discussion that has been had recently on this channel, there's still a lot of experts that feel like um, we could very well enter a recession later this year, some point next year. Um, mm-hmm. What would you expect that to do in the near term to this marketplace? You'd mentioned it sort of cooled off and no big surprise, right? We had one of the worst years ever for stocks and bonds combined last year. So obviously that you would expect that to take some of the purchasing pressure off. We, I know it's you, you've said it's it's not a super correlated asset, but what, what do you think a recession would do to this market? Yeah, and we've we've analyzed this at least with the last two recessions, right? With uh, what happened in 08, 09, as well as with the dot-com crash. Um, it's, it's had almost a negative correlation. Uh, and the reason, which is kind of sad, is that people drink more during recessions, right? <laughs> probably to the detriment of all of us, but to the uh, uh, probably to the delight of all of the alcohol producers is that what we see whenever the stock market goes down and we enter recession, uh, that drinking pattern, it, it goes up. And the folks who do consume these really expensive wines, right, they're usually pretty well insulated from recessions, right? Of course, they're going to be cutting back on spending. Like, like all of us, and nothing is completely recession-proof, but because the consumption market is depending on high net worths, right, we're, it's relatively well-insulated when you start to enter those types of the market. And, and let me ask about that. So I, I was just a few weeks ago in, in a very high-demand real estate enclave. Um, so a lot of concentrated net worth, not a lot of housing supply. And mm-hmm. I was asking a realtor there, this same question. Hey, what do you think a, a, a recession would do to housing prices here? And he said, not very much. And I don't think he was talking his book. His, his justification was, was like the clientele that buys these places is like they their net worth could evaporate in half overnight and they they still wouldn't 
change their spending at all because they have so much money. <laughs> um, and I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but is this market a little bit like that where you know, you've got limited supply as we've been talking about here and as more high net worth investors come into this place, they're going to have to be really impaired before they materially stop curtailing their purchasing in this asset class. Yeah, I think it's, it's exactly right, right? It's a luxury good, right? Purchasing your, your third or fourth home in a gated neighborhood is also a luxury, right? And the folks who do work in those worlds, they're very well insulated. And as you said, like their lifestyle is not going to change throughout a recession. All right. Well, Anthony, um, this has been a really interesting discussion. Um, thanks so much for coming on and doing this. I've really learned I'll a lot. It. It's been fun. Um, I think I'm going to become a wine investor soon. Um, for folks that are interested in learning more, uh, your team has created uh, a, a nice page uh, to, for us to send people to. Folks, if you're interested, go to wealthion.com slash VinoVest. You can learn a little bit more about the opportunity and there are links there to go engage with the team over there at VinoVest if you want to have one of those consultations that Anthony was talking about. Um, uh in terms of people that just want to learn more as well about this, Anthony, what else would you encourage them to do? Do you guys have any sort of outreaches? I know you mentioned that you try to foster a sense of community amongst your investors there. Do you put on educational opportunities for folks to learn more about this space? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with this asset class, we realize that education is really extremely important. Um, and a couple times a month, we'll do online webinars. So if you're you know, if you can't make a personal consultation, they're all recorded. You can take a look at them as well. We also have free guides, PDFs on our website at vinovest.co for you to be able to peruse on your own time. And I think the best thing is, you know, if you have a question, we're always available for you. So I'll give out my personal email. It's anthony at vinovest.co. So if any wealthy and listeners just want to talk to me and ask, ask their questions, I'm here for you as well. All right. Uh, you're a bold man to be uh, putting your email address out there. I'm sure position. you're going to get a lot of folks inquiring, but yeah. that's great. That shows your commitment to uh, to educating folks about this space. Um, all right, folks. Well, look, um, again, to learn more about VinoVest, go to Wealthion.com slash VinoVest. Engage with them that way or email Anthony directly. Um, and just a reminder, uh, you know, on this channel, we talk a lot about um, the importance of working with a financial planner in uh, determining how best to navigate whatever the markets may hold in front of us. Um, whenever you're investing in any type of new uh, in investment uh, vehicle or, or asset class, uh, usually good to check in with your uh, financial advisor and just say, hey, how much of my net worth should I initially consider and in, in, uh, putting into this and making sure your advisor knows that you're adding exposure to a new asset class here so that they can structure the rest of your portfolio around that. Anthony's nodding a bit as I'm saying this. Uh, so if you uh, have a good financial advisor, make sure you keep them uh, up to date if you're thinking about investing in wine. Um, if you don't, or if you like a second opinion from one who's familiar with investing in alternate uh, asset classes inside a traditional portfolio, talk to one of the investment advisors that Wealthion endorses. To go do that, just fill out the short form at Wealthion. Dot com have a free consultation with these guys doesn't cost you anything no commitment to work with them it's just a public service that they offer um but i found this super fascinating anthony folks if you did as well would like to see anthony come back on this program again at some point in the future and update us on what's happening in the wine and spirits markets 
And if you enjoyed just this conversation in general with them, please let us know by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Anthony, again, thanks so much. I'll let you have the last word here as we wrap things up for folks. It's been a pleasure, Adam, and thank you for the awesome questions. And yeah, I think to your point about the financial advisor having a second opinion, many of our clients, they'll bring their advisor in on that consultation call. So it's something that we love to see um, and want to make sure you're um, fully, fully aware and understand everything before you dive in, right? I think- Right, and, and I better imagine that this is kind of novel for a lot of financial advisors, and we'd totally. love to get the word out there that, hey, these are additional alternatives that you as an advisor should be telling people when relevant to consider adding to their portfolios. Yeah. We, work, we work a lot with RAs as well. So for any RAs who are listening, we do have a partnership set up our partnerships team. So we're happy to have those conversations as well. If you're looking to be able to see how you, you know, adding these alternatives may make sense in your clients' portfolios. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up here again, Anthony, a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Everyone else. Thanks so much for watching. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you.